0: Heavenly Father, we thank You for being a God who is so gracious, who is so slow to anger and so quick to mercy. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come to Your Word today, that You would give us eyes to see and that You would give us ears to hear, that You would remove the veil from our hearts that we might see the glory of the Gospel and Your goodness, Your great goodness toward your children reflected in this passage today. For the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29 is where we're going to be. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 to 30. How do you prepare for life? I mean, if, if a kid came up to you and said, you know, what do I have to do to, to prepare for life? What exactly would you say? I mean, the, the truth is there are some of us who are probably still trying to figure out a good answer for that question. But with that said, there are probably as as many different answers as there are different people. But most people would agree that in order to prepare for life, uh, you probably want to learn a thing or two. And so we send our kids off to school, or uh, for many of us, we we homeschool our kids to educate them just in, in some of the basics that'll help them get a little bit of momentum going, a little bit of a start in life. And maybe at some point, in their youth, as they're they're growing up, you start assigning them chores to complete at home in an effort to teach them a work ethic, in an effort to teach them responsibility and things like that. And as they get older, maybe their chores get a little bit more advanced, a little bit more complicated. You start giving them an allowance so that they learn some money management skills. At some point, maybe they go off to college or maybe they end up going off to trade school or maybe they get an internship in which they're able to get their feet wet without making a a huge uh, commitment. You know, they can get their feet wet in the the career they're headed toward. But whatever the case, by the time they grow up and, and they move out, you know, whatever you've done, you hope for the best. I mean, that's, that's all you can do. They move out. You hope for the best. You, you hope that you've grounded them in the basics, but you know that there are some lessons in life which are caught, but not so much taught. That there they're lessons that you have to learn in the school of hard knocks. Because we can only teach them so much. To an extent, the school of hard knocks reality is going to have to do the rest. And the Christian journey is very similar. In the 28th chapter of Genesis, which we looked at last week, we saw that Jacob was forced to flee from the threats of murder from his twin brother Esau. But as he fled, we saw that God revealed Himself to Jacob in a dream. And He reiterated the promises of the covenant blessings that He had made to His grandfather Abraham and to His father Isaac. And God promised to bless Jacob Jacob, And to be with him. And I doubt that Jacob realized that this was the beginning of a lifelong course of training in the school of God's hard knocks. While we all recognize that the prosperity gospel is a false gospel, it's pretty easy to pick out. It's pretty easy to to identify as being completely false. There's a cousin, if you will, of of the movement, which teaches that if you're truly walking with God, everything's going to be sunshine and cupcakes. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to go right. And that it's when you're not growing in faith, or when you don't have enough faith, that when, then that's when things start to go wrong. That's when bad things happen. It's when your faith is weak. Maybe you'll get sick. Maybe you'll get in a car accident. Bad things will happen to you, and adherence of this very false and dangerous theology will make the same error that actually Job's friends made, if you know the story of Job. His friends said, well, you know, if if bad things are happening to you, it must be because you're in sin or you don't have enough faith. The 29th chapter of Genesis is going to be a clear picture, a clear reminder that the opposite is often the case. Sometimes things that we wish wouldn't happen to us will happen to us because we have faith, because we are children of God, and because God loves us and wishes to discipline us or to humble us or to just teach us to walk more closely to Him. And it's through God's school of hard knocks that we grow in godly virtue and in our trust in God's never-failing faithfulness. God will richly bless all who place saving faith in Christ. But one of the greatest blessings that God gives us is humility. God will bless us by humbling us, showing us the weakness of our flesh. And God will discipline us to keep us from wandering off into sin. To teach us not to love our sin anymore, but to hate our sin. And that is a blessing. It might not feel like it at the time, but that is a rich, rich blessing. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. It's one of my favorite psalms. And the thing is, it's one thing to know the truth that this psalm is promoting or or teaching us it's one thing to know it intellectually but it's quite another to know it experientially to be able to look back on the hardest times of your life and to be able to say praise God for that time I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death and God drew me closer to himself in those times So, praise the Lord for those times. Praise the Lord for hardships. Praise the Lord for afflictions. Praise the Lord for the valleys. And the only way to know these truths experientially is to encounter the various trials and hardships that are normal for the Christian journey. So, today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 30, and the central point of this passage is that the Christian life is a journey that's like a school in which the believer grows in godly virtue and in the likeness of Christ through trials and through circumstances that have been ordained by God. So we start immediately after Jacob uh, wakes up from his dream and he, he makes these kind of silly vows that if God will bless him, he can, he can be his God. Um, And and, and of course, we we recognize that those are very childish vows, but God doesn't just give us grace at the beginning. He gives us grace all the way through the walk, each step. So we continue uh, going into chapter 29. Let's look at verses 1 to 8. Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 8. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east as he looked he saw a well in the field and behold three flocks of sheep lying beside it for out of that well the flocks were watered the stone on the well's mouth was large and when all the flocks were gathered there the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well jacob said to his brothers my brother jacob said to them my brothers where do you come from they said we are from haran he said to them do you know laban the son of Nahor. They said, we know him. He said to them, is is it well with them? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well." So translated literally, if if you look at just verse 1, translated literally, verse 1 says that Jacob lifted up his feet. And the implication there seems to be that Jacob, after having this dream, and after making this this vow, as immature as it may be, that Jacob has a renewed sense of passion. He has a renewed sense of of purpose. He's got a renewed push in life. He was both motivated and comforted having believed that God would be with him and that God was for him. And so you get the sense that as he leaves, he's got his bite back. You know, he's got a little bit more pep in his step than he did the day before. The day before, he was filled with fear. And now he's filled with confidence after hearing God's promises. So as Jacob looks to the horizon, he sees three flocks of sheep by a well in a field, and the well is capped off by a large stone, and that was there, that would have been there as a means of protecting the water from uh, people coming in and and stealing it, Uh, you know, if they they weren't uh, inhabitants of the land or if they didn't own the land, or uh, just to, to prevent contaminants from getting in it. And I'm sure that it would have taken several shepherds to roll it away. Uh, Archaeology has shown that some of those stones can be really, really big and really heavy. But we know that, that Jacob was with Isaac when Isaac... Uh, wandered through the land uh, and ended up in Beersheba eventually, but as he wandered through the land, God was providing well after well after well for him. And I'm sure that Jacob was interpreting this well that he's come across in light of the way that God had provided for his father in the same way. And now in light of God's promises to be with him and to bless him. You can imagine how excited Jacob must have been. I mean, there's not a lot of water out in this wilderness territory. And so as Jacob comes across this well, he's got to be very excited not only to reach water, but also to reach civilization. There are people there. And so he calls out to these shepherds to greet them, apparently not noticing or perhaps just not caring that they didn't greet him first. And if you look at the brief nature of all of their answers, it's it's pretty clear they're trying to avoid a conversation with him. They're not really interested in being very charitable or friendly with him. So you can imagine these, these rough and rugged characters trying to mind their own business, avoiding eye contact, answering his questions with as few syllables as they possibly can. They're so reluctant to have a conversation. As soon as Rachel... Uh, comes into view. As soon as she comes into the scene, they try to divert Jacob's attention to her as if to say, hey bro, why don't you pay attention to her and let us mind our own business over here. But Jacob doesn't leave them alone. I I think he he possibly uh, senses their lack of hospitality. I think he, he possibly senses their, um, their irritation, their, their passive-aggressive responses, and so he gets a little passive-aggressive himself, sort of reprimanding them for not having watered their sheep already. He said, it's, it's past time, so why, why don't you go and do that? Or maybe he's telling them to get busy for a different reason, because he sees this gorgeous, gorgeous shepherdess Coming. Either way, it appears that the custom was that these shepherds, these, these men, uh, were there early to water their sheep, and they were just getting themselves in line, uh, in the first places in line. But you see Jacob's demeanor here. It, it's radically different than it was at the beginning of the previous chapter. He's, he's confident. What a, what a difference he's experiencing from the day before. And that's usually how the christian life starts isn't it isn't that usually where the journey starts we're very excited you know we we hear the gospel god removes the veil from our hearts to to show us the glory of christ to show us how desperately we need a savior and to show us that christ is the solution for our greatest needs and it puts a little pep in our step too we get a little excited about it too and it's good to have those emotions Those are good, healthy emotions. It's good to be excited about God's promises. It's good to be confident about what God has promised. But if faith is going to last, if faith is going to endure life, it must be based on more than just emotions because emotions can only take us so far. Emotions only last so long. You ever ever see a couple that's in the honeymoon phase of their marriage? You know, they're, they're gushing with emotions. You know, all kinds of PDA. And, you know, just they, they love each other and there's so much emotion and so much happiness and that's exactly the way it should be. Those are good emotions. They're, there's nothing wrong with having those, those feelings, getting butterflies in your stomach. But if there isn't true love that's growing beneath the surface, a couple will be very disappointed with each other and and with the institution of marriage after about two years if you study the rate of divorce you'll see that there's a major spike in divorce right at about the two-year mark why do you think that is it's because that's when emotions start wearing thin or wearing out and similarly well there are a lot of churches in our day and age which strive to rekindle the emotional high that a person experiences when they, when they first came to Christ, when Christ first came to them. When, it's good to have those emotions, but to rekindle them in an artificial sense isn't good. And I fear that there are far too many churches that are trying to rekindle those initial emotions through artificial and manipulative means. Rather than preaching the greatness of God showing people what a what an awesome what an amazing what a what a good God we have many churches have an emphasis on playing music over and over and over and over music that's designed to just stir up your emotions rather than encouraging people to grow in holiness to strive for the holiness without which no one will see God rather than encouraging people to do that they just encourage people Just try to give them a boost in their self-esteem. Now, don't get me wrong. Those emotions aren't necessarily bad. They can be very, very good. But we have to remember that God didn't uh, just give us a heart. He also gave us a mind. But we don't want to go the other way and, and act as if God just gave us a mind but didn't give us a heart. Right? We want to have a balance of intellect and emotion. If you're going to grow in your love for Christ, it has to be more than just emotion. It also has to be intellect. But it can't just be intellect. It also has to be emotion. So are you growing in that sense? Are you growing in your resolve to follow Christ? Are you resolving to live a life of obedience and perseverance? Not for your glory not even for what you want in your flesh, but for the glory of God and His alone. Because children of God can and should expect life to throw curveballs at them. And that's where it becomes very dangerous to have a faith that's built on nothing but emotions when life throws a curveball at you. There will be disappointments. You'll go through valleys. There will be betrayals. And if you aren't actively growing in your love and your devotion to Christ, the temptation to backslide, the temptation to sin, the temptation to maybe even walk away from the faith forever will be very, very strong if you're just chasing what gives you the emotional high. We have to see that all these things that Jacob is experiencing... They're all God's providence. It isn't just chance that he happens to stumble upon a well. It isn't blind luck that he stumbles upon these shepherds who just so happen to be from the place that he was going and just so happened to know the very person that he's looking for. It's not coincidence. No, every step is God's providential blessing. But Jacob is young. His faith is very immature. There's a lot of emotion. And God has to move him beyond that. And trials are the normal means by which God grows us, grows our faith. And Jacob is about to have some serious curveballs thrown at him by life. Let's look at verses 9-14. to While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So as soon as Jacob sees Rachel, he's smitten. And this is perhaps the most beautiful love story between two human beings in all of Scripture. I mean, it's basically love at first sight. And Jacob's response at first is kind of comical. He draws near to the well, and he alone rolls the stone away from the mouth of the well putting Rachel at the front of the line. She's the last to arrive, but she gets to go to the front of the line. Now, keep in mind that it would have been very normal for several men uh, to be needed to roll away the stone, but Jacob does it all by himself. Um, Men can accomplish incredible feats of strength and stupidity when a woman's first impression is at stake. And so as far as Jacob is concerned, the early birds who get to the well first, well, they, they can wait. It's almost as if, in his mind, they're not even there. And Jacob waters her sheep, and he proceeds to kiss Rachel. Now, we don't know, is it a, a kiss on, on the cheek, you know, like a, a cultural custom type of thing? Or is it a kiss on the lips? Uh, we can't know for sure, but what we do know is that Jacob's heart is singing, And tears are just flowing down his face. He saw this in light of God's promises. He saw this as a fulfillment of God's promises. He was realizing that God is so, so good. God is so, so good. And if that's the first thing that a person realizes or understands about God that is a very good thing to know about God that he is good he is so so good but we and Jacob will eventually have to learn that God is always good that God is good when life is good and when life is hard he's going to have to learn that God is sovereign when life is good and when life is hard so jacob tells rachel who he is he's the grandson of abraham he's the son of isaac her uncle or her her father his uncle and so she apparently knew the story of how abraham's servant had come to haran many years ago seeking a wife for isaac and so she runs home and tells her father laban Now Laban, if you'll remember from several chapters ago, Laban was there to see the great, great riches that were traded in exchange for Rebekah's hand in marriage. And he knew that Abraham was a very, very wealthy, very powerful individual. He also knew that Isaac, because Abraham was wealthy, that Isaac would also have been very, very wealthy. And so what assumption do you think he must have had about Jacob as Jacob comes to him if you know Laban's character you know that like Jacob he's looking out for himself he's a swindler he's a cheat he's a rat he's a low life who is looking out for number one all the time and knowing this about him, maybe we understand why he, he runs out to greet Jacob with such excitement. I mean, it sounds like the prodigal son, right? That's what it sounds like. That's what this picture reminds me of. This, this guy runs out and he, he wraps his arms around him and he kisses him. He's so happy to see him. He's expecting gifts. He's expecting riches. He's expecting something really good. In his mind, this has got to be some kind of payday. And so, as Jacob tells his uncle Laban about what he's experienced, Laban responds by sounding somewhat hospitable, telling Jacob he's, he's willing to, he, to, to let him stay for a month. One month. Now that might seem charitable. And maybe it is to an extent, but as, as Laban listens to Jacob's situation, it seems that his excitement begins to diminish and by the time you get to verse 14 his excitement has diminished greatly he's convinced that this is his nephew but his attitude seems to reflect the reality that jacob has nothing to give he has no gifts he has no riches he has absolutely nothing to give from jacob's perspective as Jacob is, is being welcomed by his uncle and, and allowed to, to stay for a month, this is all, he, he's seeing all of this as God's providential blessing. And it is. That is exactly what it is. And God would continue to bless him. And God would continue to sustain him. But not in the ways that Jacob would have been expecting. See, Jacob was just an infant in his faith. After 70 plus years of living for himself, cheating his way through life, there are a lot of things about him that need to change. Jacob has spent his life looking to himself, taking matters into his own hands, trusting in and leaning on his own understanding. And what's going to break him? What's going to wean him from such foolishness? Trials will. Trials will. Experiencing God's discipline will. And God loves his children enough to do that. The Christian life is a school of hard knocks, it's a journey in which the believer grows in godly virtue and in the likeness of Christ through trials, through valleys, through circumstances, all of which are ordained by God. Jacob needs to learn humility. Jacob needs to learn compassion. Jacob needs to understand the wickedness of his swindling ways. And God loved Jacob. God loved Jacob. He loved him enough to show Jacob how wrong, how wicked swindling and lying and scheming is so that Jacob would learn to hate the sin that he's lived with for 70 plus years. See, the greatest good is not to be happy. The greatest good is to reflect the nature, the goodness, the righteousness, the kindness, the mercy of Christ. It's to grow in His likeness. And we grow in godly virtue much better in valleys than we do on mountaintops. That's just the reality of it. God doesn't just Bring us to faith in Christ and then just leave us to ourselves. He's with us through the journey. And He ordains the circumstances of our lives so that we will grow in Christ's likeness. So that we'll learn to hate our sin. That doesn't happen naturally. If God's not teaching us to hate our sin, it's not going to happen. But God wants to teach us to hate our sin. And to love his ways. And that happens in valleys much better than it does on mountaintops. And this is exactly what Jacob is about to experience. Let's continue. Verses 15 to 30. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance Jacob loved Rachel and he said I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel Laban said it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man stay with me so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her then Jacob said to Laban give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve serve with you for Rachel?' Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. So you'll notice that right off the bat, right after inviting Jacob to stay, when the, when the month is over, basically, Laban makes it clear that there's no more free ride. That if, if Jacob's going to stay, He's going to have to do something if he's going to to continue to reside there, and he needs some place to go. He's going to have to serve. So the hospitality is all over with; it, it's thrown out. But what's troubling is that he presents this demand as if he's being generous. He basically says, "Well, you know, while you're here, I, I'm just too nice to have you serve me without at least paying you. So, uh, what do you charge? What do you want?" And you have to wonder if Jacob even realizes how quickly the tone of this this conversation is is turning. Suddenly his identity is primarily, as far as Laban is concerned, servant, rather than nephew. Immediately after the discussion of what the wages will be, we're introduced to a, to a a second woman, Rachel's older sister Leah. And you'll notice that we're given this this contrast that Leah has soft or weak eyes and Rachel is apparently just a bombshell. She's just drop-dead gorgeous. Commentators are, are kind of divided on exactly what it would mean to have weak eyes or, or soft eyes, depending on what your translation may say. But most think that it basically means that she just doesn't have a sparkle in her eyes or a glow in her eyes. In other words... She's not the kind of girl that James Blunt would be singing, you know, serenading, you're beautiful to. You know? She's, she's kind of homely. She, she's not the most attractive girl in the world. So having seen the, the two sisters, Jacob reveals what his wage, what his requested wage is. Rachel. He'll work seven years to have her hand in marriage. Seven years. For, for a girl that he... He barely knows her. I mean, he, he, he kind of just met her, but he's smitten, isn't he? He's smitten. You know, m- most people in our day and age have trouble waiting seven hours for something that they want. Or seven days for something that they want. Forget seven years. And, and yet, I would remind you of what Paul said about love. He said, love is patient. Love, true love, is patient. And for Jacob to be willing to work for no wage other than Rachel's hand, for seven years, no wage, just Rachel someday, indicates that his love for her is a very real love. It's very real. This isn't just puppy love. This isn't just butterflies in his stomach. No, this is patient, patient, enduring love as true and great love always is. And I love the fact that Jacob was willing to commit so many years to gaining Rachel's hand. See, when we when we want something, when we fix our hearts on something, we can do do great we, we can sometimes go to absolutely insane lengths to gain what our heart most desires. For Jacob, his heart is so fixed on her that these seven years go by in no time flat. It feels like days instead of years. In a lot of ways, Jacob is the antithesis of how to live. He's not a very noble character in a lot of ways. But when it comes to patience, when it comes to patient love, I don't know of any character in the human Bible who sets a better example for us to follow. During these seven years, Rachel obviously gets older. She, she matures. She grows up. She was probably fairly young. She does some growing up. And during these seven years, so does her older sister, Leah. And apparently during these seven years, nobody had asked for Leah's hand in marriage. And so when Jacob goes to Laban after these seven years are up and demands Rachel's hand in marriage, as per the agreement seven years earlier, Laban swindles, he deceives Jacob, giving him Leah instead. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15 says, The way of the treacherous is their ruin. And man, Jacob's life is a picture of this at this point. This is the way that Jacob had operated his entire life, by deceiving by swindling, by conning. He, he was a cheater. Just like his uncle Laban. And we'd be right to say that he's, he's just getting a taste of his own medicine. And what better way to make a lasting impression on Jacob's mind than for God to allow something so devious, so deceptive to happen to him. And so in the, the darkness of night, the marriage between Jacob and Leah, is consummated. And Jacob has no idea that this is Leah. Leah was probably very similar in stature and shape to Rachel, but she was probably dressed in Rachel's clothes. She was probably wearing Rachel's sweet perfume. Sounds an awful lot like what Jacob did to his father, doesn't it? And so as the sun comes up in the morning, Jacob rolls over to see that the woman he had married and spent the night with isn't Rachel. It's her older sister, the sister with the weak eyes, the homely sister who couldn't hold a candle to her younger sister. And worse than that, it seems that Leah, who's now his wife, was complicit in this scheme. Is it possible that that Leah had secretly loved Rachel? Jacob all along. It's possible. Maybe maybe it's even likely. But what a horrible ploy. What a horrible scheme to participate in, whether she loved him secretly or not. And now Jacob is married to this woman who so willfully deceived him. So Jacob does what we would expect him to do. He, He goes to Laban and he protests. He said, why, why, why have you done this to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban keeps us cool. He calmly responds, explaining that, hey, son, that's not the way we do it here. That's not, that's not the custom in this culture. In, in our culture, he says, it's the oldest daughter who has to be married first. And so the irony is that Jacob, this swindler, gets swindled. Jacob the deceiver gets deceived. The second great irony is that he had to learn to honor the rights of the firstborn. And that's something that he certainly hadn't done with his own brother Esau. So Jacob is basically just reaping what he has sown. First Samuel chapter 24, verse 13 says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness. Laban is wicked. What else would you expect to come out of him? He's a child of the devil. He's a child of wrath. I mean, this is exactly what Jacob should have expected from his uncle Laban. But this is the first time in his life, the third irony, this is the first time in his life that he's tried to gain something honestly by doing things in an upright fashion. And he got swindled. So there's, there's a sense of poetic justice in it all, right? but it's also true that two wrongs don't make a right. But Jacob is being shown how terrible and how wicked the fruit of deceitfulness is. Now let me ask you, it's been less than a chapter since God made these promises to bless him and to provide for him and to be with him. Do you think... It's just a coincidence that right after God makes these great promises to Jacob, that Jacob sees, that we see Jacob get swindled. Is that an accident? No. There are no accidents in a universe where God is sovereign. Moses, the author of this book, put these two things back together to show us that being a child of God doesn't ensure that everything is just going to be sunshine and cupcakes. Keep in mind, who who is Moses telling this story to? He's telling this story to Israelites who had come out of slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And as they're wandering through the wilderness, they're starting to feel like, hey, this is ridiculous. let's go back to Egypt where we can at least have some, some leeks and onions because God, He might say that He's with us, but it sure doesn't feel like He's with us. God promised to bless us, but it sure doesn't feel like He's blessing us. You ever feel like that? It's, it's only human to feel that way. But what we have to understand is that God not only ordains and uses our circumstances to mold us, but He also uses the consequences of our decisions, of our sinful choices to mold us. God never allows sin to be inconsequential without consequences in the life of the believer. Remember, that was the lie that the serpent told Eve in the Garden of Eden. You can go ahead and sin. God is not going to kill you. You're not going to die. Sin is inconsequential, is the lie of the devil. But God never allows sin to go without consequences of some type in our lives. Why not? Because He loves us because He loves us too much to let us think that, well, if sin just makes us happy, we should just keep doing that. You know who God leaves to their sin? The neighbor's kids. Not His kids. The neighbor's kids. Children of wrath don't receive God's loving, fatherly discipline in this life. Keep in mind that God knew that all of this would happen this is all ordained by God the God who works all things according to the counsel of his perfect and sovereign will is the same God who led Jacob to these shepherds by the well to Rachel to Laban's household and to what followed what happened in Laban's household it's not that Jacob thought that those things were God's providence, but that they weren't. No, this is all God's providence. All of it. This entire chapter. This is all being done according to God's perfect, unfailing plan. And it's not payback. God's not, this isn't divine retribution. It's God's way of loving Jacob as a father loves his son. It's God's way of growing Jacob and showing Jacob the wickedness of his scheming, the wickedness of his conning, the wickedness of his own ways. And so the swindler gets swindled. The deceiver gets deceived. He, he's met his match, you might say, right? But this isn't the end of the lesson. No, this is a lesson that Jacob would revisit time and time and time again throughout his life. Even his own sons will one day deceive him in their effort to get their brother Joseph out of their lives for good. In Jacob's defense, he he did try to do the right thing here. I mean, what was he supposed to do? I mean, he could have left town, but he didn't. In fact, there's no evidence anywhere that he ever chastised or or scorned or berated Leah for what she had done, for, for playing a complicit part in this scheme. In fact, Jacob would go on to father several children with Leah, including Judah. Judah, the one through whom the Messiah, Christ, would come. So Jacob honors his marriage with Leah. But he also agrees to serve another seven years, once again in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. Now it might seem absurd to you that I would suggest that God is not only growing Jacob that he might be glorified in Jacob's life but he's also using Laban God is using Laban for God's own glory although Laban um, there's no indication that he has even the slightest clue that God is using him for God's glory God uses circumstances and God uses consequences to grow us in the likeness of Christ, but He also uses difficult people to grow us in godly virtue. Let me say that again, just in case you missed it. God also uses difficult people to grow us in godly virtue. And maybe that's the hardest one of all. Maybe that's the most painful one of all. I'm quite sure that as soon as I just said that, Somebody came into your mind. Somebody who has rubbed you wrong. Somebody who has abused you. Somebody who has manipulated you. Somebody who has taken advantage of you. Maybe it's just somebody who chewed you up and spit you out, much like Laban did with Jacob. We need to understand that God is sovereign over that. God's sovereign over that. While somebody like Laban you know you might liken him to to sandpaper as as rough and as abrasive as he is the way he scuffs anybody up who who dares to get close to him god uses this guy who's like sandpaper to smooth out some of the rough edges on jacob and that's why god has allowed people who have personalities that resemble sandpaper to come into your life as well as I look back on some of the hardest times of my life, I'm thankful for them. I've learned to thank God for them, knowing that God grew me in areas and to depths that I desperately needed to be grown in. Like Jacob, you know, um, somebody might encounter me and say, that guy's a piece of work. Okay, maybe I am, but I'm taking comfort in the fact that I'm a work in progress. Just like everybody else who is a child of God. We're all a work in progress. What about you? What about you? Think about your life. Consider the hardships you have experienced. E- even the hardships before you were saved. Consider the trials that you've gone through. Consider the way that God might have used and continues to use either the circumstances in your past or the circumstances in your present to shape you and to mold you, to conform you to the image of Christ. Maybe you were laid off from the career you were sure that you'd have for the rest of your life. Maybe you were diagnosed with a terminal illness. Maybe you have a spouse who was unfaithful to you or who divorced you. Think of the ways that you grew as a result of those trials. Think of the ways that God grew you through those difficult, painful times. Think of the ways that you wouldn't have grown if you hadn't gone through that. Do you suppose that God couldn't use whatever that circumstance in your mind might be to grow you in Christ? That He could use it for good? Crucial to our growth in godly virtue is growing in our willingness and growing in our ability to look at and to interpret our circumstances, past and present, through the lens of God's absolute, unquestioned, unparalleled, uncontested sovereignty. And to see it through His promise, through the lens of His promise, that He is actively causing all things, all things, to work for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Romans 8.28 Our hearts cry out for relief from the pain that we have in life I get it that's by design that's your heart getting hungry for heaven see God wants us to be hungry to enter into his eternal presence to be broken away from not only the sinful world but the effects of living in a sinful world He doesn't want us to be satisfied with this world. He doesn't want us to be content with this world. He doesn't want us to be comfortable with this world. He loves us too much to let us be comfortable. As God uses our circumstances to grow us in Christ-likeness, it's inevitable That the more like Christ we become, the less like the world will be. And that is what the Christian life is all about. And the less like the world we are, the more hungry we become for heaven. Not for the sake of having heaven. Not for the sake of being in this place of eternal bliss. That's a secondary reason to want it. The first reason to want heaven is because that's where you have to go to have Christ he's our eternal treasure if he wasn't there would you still want to go there why no he has to be the object of our supreme desire God's work on us is is ongoing takes a lifetime. Through trials and through difficult circumstances, God is teaching us to hate sin and to love righteousness. Through discipline and consequences, God is teaching us to turn from our defiant rebellion and to live instead in obedience to His Word. The challenge for us, in light of God's sovereignty, And in light of God's promises unto all who trust in Christ unto salvation, repenting of sin, and believing exclusively in Christ, the challenge is to accept whatever comes. The challenge is to embrace whatever may pass. Whatever life throws at us. Because for those who are in Christ, none of it There's not a single trial that you've been through in life. If you are in Christ, there's not a single valley that you've been through that was all for nothing. There's not a single circumstance in your life that was meaningless. So, how does God wean us from our sin? Through circumstances, through valleys, through hardships that He ordains. And this is all a work that will continue until the day we die. But here's the promise. God is with us. And He is for us through it all. His grace was not just a one-time infusion that you got at the beginning of the journey. And you better hope that it lasts until you reach the finish line. No. He gave you grace at the beginning of the journey, but He continues to give you grace each step of the journey. What a great blessing it is for God to teach us to hate our sin. What a great blessing it is to have our pride chopped down so that we may boast in nothing but the greatness and the goodness and the grace of God when we cross the finish line. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank You for being such a good God. But we thank You also that You have brought us not only two difficult circumstances, but the promise that You bring us through them. The promise that You're with us in the valleys, in the hardships, in the fire that You won't forsake us, that You won't leave us. Lord, we thank You for Your promises. And we pray that as we continue on this journey, that You would continue to wean us from our sin, that You would continue to show us the futility of our wicked ways, and that You would teach us to grow in godly virtue, that You would grow us in the very likeness of Christ. And Your Word ensures us, Lord, that You not only hear this prayer, but that You are in the midst of answering this prayer and You will continue to answer this prayer. That You will grow Your children in Christ's likeness. So Father, give us perspective. Give us thankful hearts for even the painful times. Knowing, Lord, that your promises never fail, that your love never fails, and that you're with us through it all. Teach us to live in light of these truths for the glory of Christ. Amen.